0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On today's show, New Orleans Hermann Grima House is gearing up for its annual Creole Christmas, and we'll learn how the museum has changed how they talk about slavery. Plus, we review the year in politics with our reporter Molly Ryan and the Times Picky and the Advocate's editorial director and columnist Stephanie Grace. But first, 2023 has been a hot year for the economy, at least on paper. But here in the Gulf South, more people are still turning to food banks for help. Each year around this time, Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States newsroom checks in with food banks and the people using them to see how things are going.
1: The St. Luke Food Pantry doesn't open until 8 a.m., but the line of cars started hours before that. There's going to be a line (laughs) down the road. James Williams arrived a half hour before the opening of this drive through food pantry in Tupelo, Mississippi.
2: I don't want to be way back there today.
1: <laughs> in recent years, drivers here mostly said they were doing worse off. But at the end of this year, answers are more mixed, including Williams. I think I'm doing worse, but I may be doing better. He recently lost his job. But the labor market is still tight. Unemployment in Mississippi is at 3.3%, same as Louisiana. Alabama's even lower. So his next job might not take long to find. They're out there, they're hiring. You know, I have a a couple interviews today. Still, there's one thing that has remained constant, that the drivers here say hurt them previous years, and this one. How has the kind of last year been for you financially? It's been on the rocky side.
3: Inflation stuff going up.
1: Inflation. Randy Wade's waiting in his car for a box of food, and he says it's not just grocery prices rising, it's electricity, too. A higher light bill means changing the Christmas decoration plans. I may
3: put the tree up, but I ain't going to put no lights on it. Cause you turn your lights on, here,
1: go up some more. The thing is, inflation, it's actually slowing down. Prices for food are still going up, just not as fast as they have been. Inflation may be slowing, which is terrific. Those dollar, those prices are still, for the most part, you know, there's a new normal. Michael Ledger is the head of Feeding the Gulf Coast, which supplies food for pantries across southern Alabama, Mississippi, and the Florida panhandle. I know it when I go to the grocery store. Uh, you know, you look in your cart and they ring it up and you, they tell you what the total is. And you're, and you're thinking, how could three bags of food, you know, be that much? Demand at food banks is basically doing the same thing as inflation. Still going up, just not as fast as last year. Ledger worries that's not sustainable. That more food banks might have to turn more people away. I think we're meeting, you know, the vast majority of the need. I'm just concerned that in the months, you know, year, two months, even maybe to come, uh, that we will be without, you know, the kind of support we need. The growing reliance on food banks can also be seen in New Orleans. Dozens of people are lined up outside the Broadmoor Improvement Association's pantry when the chain locking the door comes off. All right, just want to let you all know we don't have meat today, no frozen meat today, just so you know. One thing that's driving people here is that the social safety net has weakened after it got a big boost during the pandemic. It's why Janice Fletcher says this year has been not as good.
3: Because when they took the food stamps away, it brought me down to twenty three dollars.
1: Early in the year, SNAP, basically food stamps, rolled back the expanded benefits it gave out during the pandemic. Fletcher says her benefits dropped from around two hundred fifty dollars a month to twenty three dollars.
0: I'm trying to put my foot forward and they're pulling me back. I'm back in the same spot that I'm in. I'm not going forward.
1: How much SNAP benefits went down varies a lot from person to person. Irma Thomas says her SNAP benefits also decreased, but it hasn't affected her too much. She knows how to make her groceries last.
3: Big pots of beans and spaghetti and meatballs to it's kind of stretch right
1: my Overall, place. she's doing better this year after a long recovery from a bad car accident. And this food pantry has been a big help. I love it. Without the pantry, I don't know how I make it sometime. You know, my groceries run out, but thank God for these people here that help us, you know. If you'd like to help your local pantry, here's an easy way. Give them your cardboard boxes and grocery bags. The Broadmoor Pantry can always use more to carry food to people's cars. Of course, supplies and cash are also still needed, especially because donations are down at the same time that demand continues to rise. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha.
0: The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. Between the race for governor of Louisiana, the appointment of Representative Mike Johnson of Shreveport to U.S. Speaker of the House, and the slew of anti-LGBTQ legislation debated on the state house floor, this year in politics has certainly been memorable, to say the least. Here to review it all with us is our politics reporter, Molly Ryan. Molly, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace. Steph, thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me. I'd like
0: to start with a a general question for the both of you. Steph, we'll start with you. What are some of the biggest stories in politics this year?
2: Well, certainly the biggest story is that we have a new governor taking office on January 8th, Jeff Landry. Um, He, of course, is a very conservative Republican, the attorney general, and um, he replaces a Democrat, John Bell Edwards. And you know, the feeling at the beginning was that there was a, this was going to be a pretty contested election and that there were even a number of Republicans who thought, you know, he was a little bit on the extreme side. And 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 maybe there would be kind of an anybody but Landry movement mm-hmm. among Republicans that didn't materialize at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, he won a very impressive victory in the primary without even needing a runoff.
0: Molly, how about mm-hmm. you? What's your big story of the year?
2: Well, I think there were a lot of big stories. It was
3: a busy year in politics, but I'll say one big story is Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson becoming Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Of course, back in October, uh, everyone thought Steve Scalise would get that position, and he had the nomination for a bit, but he didn't get it. And a couple of weeks later, I think, to the shock of a lot of people— both in and outside of Louisiana, Republicans landed on Mike Johnson. So he's the first speaker from Louisiana ever, and he's also the first speaker from the South in about 25 years. So that's pretty big news. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'll quickly mention that we had quite a few uh, big steps forward in Louisiana's redistricting case, most notably back in June Um, The Supreme Court sent down a decision in Alabama's redistricting case requiring them to redraw their congressional map with a second majority black district. A lot of people view that as very consequential in Louisiana's case and are expecting a similar outcome here. And now a federal court gave the legislature a January deadline to redraw our congressional map again. So we're likely going to see that coming up very soon in the new year
2: and and this is you know it's really kind of one big story almost the upheaval in the Louisiana delegation that we've gone from Scalise being the top dog and kind of a speaker in waiting to Mike Johnson Steve Scalise is still majority leader so we have this kind of very strange situation where the number 1 and number 2 people in the hierarchy in the majority party are from Louisiana mm-hmm. and another republicans probably about to lose a seat because of this redistricting fight because the order is to create a second majority-minority district, which will likely be a Democratic district. So kind of all eyes are on Garrett Graves, who is in Baton Rouge, which which means he's kind of geographically vulnerable, but also, you know, he made a couple of bets that might come back to bite him um he was in the kind of fight between kevin mccarthy and steve scalise he was an ally of mccarthy there are people feeling he wasn't a strong enough ally of scalise when when scalise was trying to become speaker Mm -hmm. and also he's the he didn't endorse jeff landry he endorsed steve wagas back an opponent so you know i i would be a little worried if i were him
0: Mm mm-hmm when it comes to state races this year, there was a, a general dearth of Democratic opponents. How has that affected the, the 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 political structure and hierarchy in the state? Are we going to see strong Democratic candidates in the next couple of years?
2: Uh, if we do, I don't know where they're going to come from, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, the Governor Edwards did support a potential successor, his Department of Transportation Secretary Sean Wilson. Who again did not was not able to force a runoff with landry otherwise there really weren't strong contenders anywhere um in legislative districts or in statewide offices or for the you know the state education board even Mm -hmm. It, it was a really a republican sweep um and this is kind of in line with what's happening in the rest of the state we really have been an anomaly in the last eight years having a democratic governor in a state this conservative so i think you know we're going to be much more like our neighbors going forward in terms of you know having one really really dominant party mm-hmm. um you know there does not seem to be any sort of system to create strong candidates and 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 really i you know the trends are against them even if they were strong it does seem like
3: republicans are the new default and democrats don't have as much power as they once did and in addition to a lack of strong Democratic candidates, there was just a general lack of Democratic candidates and in, in a lot of down ballot races. So a lot of races went unopposed. And that certainly didn't help Democrats mm-hmm. and, and many races. Thanks. And hurt turnout, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. Molly, who was the biggest winner this year?
3: Well, to piggyback off of what we've been talking about, it I don't think, you know, The biggest winner was just one person, but Republicans in general, if you're a a Republican in Louisiana, you're a winner this year, and you're probably pretty happy about this year. I mean, Republicans gained a supermajority in both chambers of the state legislature um, and the regular session in the spring when Francis Thompson and then a few other lawmakers switched their party registration to the Republican Party. and. That's a big deal because, you know, it means they had the ability to override vetoes and they did override Governor John Bell Edwards on a veto in July. And then after this election cycle, Republicans will keep that supermajority. And this year, they likely won't be trying to override any vetoes because they'll have a Republican governor, Jeff Landry, in office. They reclaimed the governor's mansion. Uh, plus, all statewide seats are filled by Republicans. So they're definitely the winners here.
0: Do you Either of you, both of you. Do you think Landry's going to stay as hard right as is as he appears to be, or does governing actually temper someone's political views? You know, actually getting in and doing the job.
2: It often does, I have to say. And you know, I had a conversation that uh, we published in the paper last week with John Bell Edwards, who really hinted that this was his expectation. That, for example. Edwards had a plan to um, get the state to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Landry has called climate change a hoax. He has said decarbonization policies aren't really worth the investment. And Edwards said, you know what, he's going to keep saying that those are his politics, but there's a lot of money (laughs) being invested in these green projects. That's what he's going to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on fiscal issues too, you know, you can talk about small government, but once it comes down to really making cuts, voters don't like that. Even conservative voters.
0: Molly, you think he's (laughs) going to hang on?
2: I will be interested to see
3: how national politics and how the president and any potential future president, how they might have a hand in Louisiana politics and uh, how they might influence the way Jeff Landry governs.
0: Mm -hmm. In the minute we have left, Molly, I'll start with you. The special sessions, expectations. Is this going to be the big thing to watch instead of the regular session?
3: Well, I think the special sessions will probably be more interesting. We're looking at a redistricting session and that case has been watched for a while. And then uh, a promised special session on crime by Jeff Landry. And we don't yet know what's going to come from that. But um, I expect it to be interesting. And potentially, the legislature might roll back some of the criminal justice reforms they implemented in 2017.
2: One thing we're not having a special session on, it turns out, is insurance, which was really something a lot of candidates this fall said. You know, we're going to have a special session. We really need to get at this insurance crisis. The availability and cost of property insurance that's really hitting people hard, that's not on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably in part because of redistricting session, which now has to happen according to the judge's order. But also, like, the proposals have not really kind of come forth yet in in terms of what to do about it. Everybody knows we need to do something about it. We're not quite there yet on what.
0: It's going to be a busy 2024. And as always, we're going to have our politics reporter Molly Ryan with us. Molly, thank you for being with us. Of course, thank you. And the Times Picky and the Advocates Editorial Director and columnist Stephanie Grace. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, too. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Most of what we hear about the enslavement period in the United States comes from plantation stories. The Hermann Grima House in New Orleans French Quarter offers a different look at enslaved people, those who were enslaved in an urban setting, how that differed from rural settings, and how those people of African descent helped shape New Orleans. This time of year, the Hermann Grima House creates a Creole Christmas throughout their facility on St. Louis Street. It offers a look at an 1850s-era celebration and the contributions enslaved people made to those times. Joining me for a look inside the house is Katie Burleson, curator of the Hermann Grima House. Katie, thanks for being here. Hi, Bob. The Hermann Grima House gets its name from the two families who lived there after it was built in the 1830s. It was purchased in 1924 by the Christian Women's Exchange. Can you tell us about who they were and their mission at the time?
4: Yes. So the Christian Women's Exchange was a um, charitable organization. A lot of these kind of organizations were formed after the Civil War. There were um, lots of widows. This was typically like the wealthier white women their purpose was to help impoverished women help themselves by providing a place for them to sell things made from their own hands. And they had also a boarding house and a library. The first one was at Lafayette square, what was called South street. Um, And then they moved actually to bourbon street in 1924. They bought it for something like $22,000. You know, Um, we don't have any records of any women of color ever living there or, having their, you know, items sold there. So this was more of a white women helping white women Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Later on, the consignment store that they had called the Exchange Shop. That's where the women would sell things that they made with their own hands. And they Mm -hmm. also provided classes for pottery and sewing and things.
0: When did the Hermann Grima House change into what it is today from that uh, women's exchange
4: the mission changed in the late nineteen sixties. This was a time when preservation was really having its coming up. Also, women did not necessarily need to live in a boarding house. At this point, a lot of people still had to have things signed by, you know, a man, mm-hmm. but they were still they were able to go out and live on their own, maybe have an apartment with a friend versus living in a huge boarding house. So in the early nineteen seventies, they decided to focus on education and preservation.
0: When I visited the house for a tour back in the 90, 1980s at Christmas time, the, the decorations, I still see them in my mind's eye today, were <laughs> gorgeous. How has the focus of this presentation and the house in general changed to offer a glimpse at the hidden work that made Creole Christmases of the early and mid 1800s so special?
4: Yes, we have changed our attitude, the name of the house itself, Herman Grima House. Is um, named after the enslaving families that had the house built for them. We know for sure hidden labor is there just in the bricks of the house. You know, we know William Brand, who was the builder hired to build the house, actually owned dozens of enslaved men, like expert bricklayers. And then we can't forget that all these beautiful Christmas displays, like what you just described, when some people walk in, They might see, oh, okay, this is beautiful. When other people walk in, depending on who their ancestors are, they might be struck by, wow, none of my ancestors had it like this. Mm -hmm. And we got to remember that behind all these beautiful, you know, lushly decorated mantles, greenery, all the beautiful desserts and reflections in these gorgeous gilt frame mirrors that there was a lot of work that went into that. And the vast majority of it was done by the enslaved people who were owned by the Herman and the Grima families. We know at least 60 names of people who were enslaved there. And mm-hmm. um, now when we say the families who live there, we wanna make sure that we're saying there are other people who lived there who were parts of, you know, family. So some, it might've just been, for example, Maria and James were a mother and son who came there when Maria was, young, and she had a six-week-old son, they were sold away 16 or 17 years later when her son was a teenager and probably sent him out to a plantation or far from his mom. So um, that's just one of the many stories that we can tell.
0: Mm-hmm. We're talking about the holidays and the history of enslaved people through uh, one of the structures in New Orleans. I'm speaking with the curator of the Herman Grima House in New Orleans, Katie Burleson. Katie, how do you all highlight the contributions of the enslaved people in the house this time of year?
4: This is the urban enslavement tour. So we kind of reworked our tour where it starts in the courtyard and from the perspective of enslaved people. So we want to make sure that we start where the work would have started. All of our tours are guided. Mm-hmm. So you're not reading you know, panels. You have a, a docent who is also using what they've learned from our staff, but also from their life experience and put their own spin on things. And Mm -hmm. we'll tell you, you know, there's certain stories throughout the house that might've been throughout the years that might've struck them and really connected with them. Mm -hmm. And so I think we do what we usually do with the urban enslavement tour, and that is uh, make sure to highlight specific people, you know, names and stories, and to make sure they're not forgotten. We also draw a comparison with the lives of people on plantations in the rural setting versus the urban setting. Mm -hmm. A lot of research is, mostly been focused on plantation. I think some of the reason for that is because a lot of the families of the descendants of enslaved people stayed around those areas. And so there's a lot more information, kind of oral histories and things passed on through their family. But in the urban setting, people came and went so much that you might not get as many specific accounts. There's different relationships. Each enslaving family and enslaved person is going to have a different relationship than the next one. Mm-hmm who got vacation you know if there was like a few two days between Christmas and New Year's some people write that there was a whole week between Christmas and New Year's they didn't have to work but in the sugar plantation, people were working year-round. They could have no days off.
0: The difference between yes. the urban environment and the rural.
4: Yeah. kind of a, something that we make sure to point out um, in our tours. And then at this time of year, it has that extra kind of aspect of the time off. Was there any gifts exchange? Was there mm-hmm. any kind of celebration?
0: At the Hermann Grimma House, you all have one of the only remaining, I believe, in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Open hearth spaces in the kitchen. You have a carriage house. You've got some things there that really yes. don't exist in the French Quarter anymore.
4: Yes, the open hearth kitchen. Actually, the um, they did a bunch of archaeology around the time that they were um, turning it into a museum. Lots and lots of research on um, hearth cooking. You know, they the women who were researching it, particularly a woman named Avery Bassett, who passed away a few years ago. They traveled around the country and did research at colonial williamsburg and all kinds of places collected cookbooks and so in the archaeology found different soot marks at different places in the room so they figured out where some things were supposed to be or had been that weren't there now so there there was a recreation of using the soot marks to make these um stew holes which are kind of like burners Mm -hmm. and then the huge fireplace and then a beehive oven is what it's called. And so we actually cook the bread in there as well, especially when it's cold out and we're doing the hearth cooking demonstrations and you get the sounds, the smells, Mm -hmm. the full sensory experience of it. The stable we still have preserved as it was. It's got huge pieces of cypress. There's three stalls in there, so Uh it's really neat.
0: For someone who's not visited the Harriman Grima House before, what do you want them to take away from the experience?
4: Oh, I would love for... Everybody, when they come to be able to absorb the stories that we tell, really about. I mean, I'm a decorative arts historian, so I, you know, really talked about objects, but this place is not just about the things, it's about the people and how they lived. And I would love for people to come away with a feeling of that time period, some of the highs, some of the lows. I would like them to be able to feel how everyone, you know, get an idea of all the types of people that live there, especially when people say something that connects to their lives, we always make these connections when you're going through the tour, if they can connect it to their lives and learn anything to make them more sensitive to other people today and think about how they act in their daily life. I think that's kind of the ultimate Mm -hmm. experience.
0: A great resource, a great place to visit. Katie Burleson, curator of the Hermann Grima House in New Orleans, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much, Bob.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, editorial director and columnist for The Times-Picayune, The Advocate, Stephanie Grace, politics reporter Molly Ryan, and the curator of the Hermann Grima House, Katie Burleson. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group,